God knew what he was doing when he made us. He, he made us and he loaded us up with all kinds of nerves and nerve endings and pain receptors. Sensing pain is vital for our survival um, and responding to pain when we sense it. There's a condition, a rare condition called CIP, congenital insensitivity to pain. And you've probably heard stories about this, but it's people with CIP that cannot feel and they have never felt pain before. You know, again, at first you tell that to a child and they think, wow, that sounds like a wonderful gift to not be able to, we don't like pain. And, and so that sounds, sounds amazing. But as you can imagine, and as you know, this condition is very, is extremely dangerous for people. And so it's common for people with CIP to die early on in life just because of uh, some injury or some illness that goes undetected. And so broken bones or burn burns in particular, they're very prone to, and, or infants biting the tip of their tongue off, and infections and all the things that come in. So we're designed by God physically to feel pain, and then when we feel it, to recoil at it, to... And so to withdraw our hand from an open flame, to not keep running on a broken femur, um, we're, we're hardwired for these involuntary responses to severe pain. Well, what's true in our physical bodies is also true in our inner man. God has made us to respond to trials with sorrow, with grief, lament. That's the proper response. That doesn't mean we grieve constantly or exclusively, but Sorrow is the right response in times of real trouble and difficulty. There's a lot of confusion I see and you see as well in, in the wider church and just in terms of how you deal with suffering. And there's different, different preachers and authors that advocate different ways. Some think and say that if you suffer, it's, it's got to be because of a lack of faith. And there are, there are those health and prosperity preachers who who say we're not supposed to have negative thoughts. We've, we, those are of the devil. We're, we've got to claim health and prosperity for ourselves by faith. And, and well, again, with each of these, there, there may be a nugget of truth there, but that's, that's not the whole story. Others say, no, Christians will suffer, but they're only supposed to do so with a big smile on their face and, and uh, you know, singing a happy song all the time. And they shouldn't let, they, let that get them down. And, and, and you've got you to gotta be emotionally happy if, as you walk through whatever suffering you go through. And after all, Scripture says, rejoice always. In everything, give thanks. God works all things together for good. And so you just got to suck it up, you know, plaster on a smile, and, and just mouth the words, praise the Lord, and, and then that's, that's how you handle trials. Well, you can imagine how an approach like that to suffering and real tragedy it just breeds hypocrisy because you, you end up just putting on this veneer and, and, and it just hides the real, your, your hurts. And it leads to all kinds of problems. I mean, confusion uh, for your own soul. It's a denial of real pain and the grief that comes with it. Well, others strongly react to that approach and they swing far the other way and they say, well, we need to vent our grief to God. And so they'll often emphasize maybe the, the need to work through all the, quote, stages of grief. And so you've you, you got to express your anger and rage and bitterness. We're, we, we're to let God have it. He can take it. He's a big guy. He can handle it. So tell him how ticked off at him you really are. And, 
And so some advocate for that kind of approach. Well, none of these reflect, while, while each of them may, there may be an, an element of truth to them, none of them, I believe, reflect really the biblical or healthy way to deal with suffering. The biblical way is to not deny pain or grief, but to have sincere joy in the midst of pain and grief and hope. And that's what we see here. This is, Paul talked about this in his own experience of suffering, great trials. He, he talked about being, in 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, rejoicing. Here, Peter's writing to suffering Christians, and he doesn't say to them, hey, it's not so bad. Stop whining. You know, just, just quit, quit grieving. Smile and be happy in God. No, they're right to grieve at the various trials they're going through, and, and yet they're to, they're to rejoice, and they're right to rejoice at the same time. It's grief and joy together. Christians can experience genuine joy and grief in the midst of real pain. And Peter, Peter himself experienced this. Remember in Acts chapter 5, he, after being beaten to a pulp and, and threatened not to speak any more about Jesus Christ, he and the other apostles in Acts 5.41 says, they went on their way rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. And so, we started our journey through 1 Peter last week, and we, 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 we continue that journey today. The letter begins, and we saw this last week, that God, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Look back at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So last week we, we talked about the objective grounds of this living hope. What, it's, a, it's rooted in God and what He's done and what He's promised and what awaits us because of His power. And, and, and this week... We're looking at the expression of that living hope. Last week was the grounds of it. This week is the expression of it. What does it look like to experience this living hope? What, is it, what does it look like to, to live with this? And Peter's answer is joy. It's joy. Joy is the fruit of hope. Paul talked like this in Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Those two are connected. And so there's this special kind of joy that is available to us because of Christ and what he's done. And so, so for, for reasons that we'll consider this morning, we are able to greatly rejoice. And he goes on to say we have access to this joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. It's unutterable. And so this is, this is what Jesus promised to his disciples. Remember in the upper room in John 15 as he's, he's gathering with his disciples on the night on which he was betrayed. The next day he'll be crucified and he's gathered with them and he says to them and promises them, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so we're going to see two aspects of this joy that become evident in these verses, in verses 6 through 9 today. We're going to talk about its resilience and then we're also going to see its relational nature. And so it's resilience and it's relational nature. First thing, we're talking about resilient joy. Joy in spite of suffering. This is in verses 6 and 7. 
Look at verse 6 again with me. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So you rejoice, if the, the short version of the sentence, you rejoice, though you have been grieved. Joy in the midst of grief. It's not either or, joy or grief. It's both and, well, Peter says. He says that for these believers, it's, it's both. So he says, he says, you rejoice. That's not the typical word for joy or rejoice. We have a daughter named Kara, Kara, which is a Greek word for joy. Cairo is, is the more common word for rejoice. Here it's, it's a less common word for joy, but it's an intensified form of that word in the Greek language. So Peter's, he's trying to get his reader's attention. He's trying to get our attention. And so you could translate this something like, you, you are extremely joyful. If some of you are using the King James Version, I think it says, exceedingly glad. That's, that's good. It's, and and it's, so it's this intense form of rejoicing, but it's also, it's in the present tense, just meaning that it's, it's a continuous state. It's, it's ongoing. It's not a temporary outburst of joy like, man, you, 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 you were glad. No, it's, it's a habit of life for them to rejoice, to be exceedingly glad, extremely joyful. So this is intense, deep, persistent, resilient joy. And it's deeply rooted joy. This isn't based upon their circumstances that are always shifting and always changing. No, it's deeply rooted. What is it rooted in? Verse 6, again, look at the first word. In this. What is the this that we rejoice in? Well, it's the joy, it's joy that's rooted, again, in God and what He's done and what He's promised. It's what we looked at last week in verses 3 to 5. It's that entire future hope that, that Peter says is ours. And so the roots of this, our present joy in the midst of our sufferings and difficulties, they, they, they go down into the soil of both the what Christ has accomplished through his death and his resurrection, which was emphasized, and also in the, in the soil of our secure and bright future, we have this inheritance that awaits. So it's in this you rejoice. But again, here's the interesting thing. Peter, Peter adds, in this you rejoice, what? Though now, for a little while, you have been grieved by various trials. This combination, rejoicing in future hope, and yet suffering Present grief, grief and joy, kind of intermingled. And the word grief here, it's not just the word for suffer. It's just not you're going through hard times, though for now you go through hard times. No, it's, it refers really to the emotion of grief that's produced by suffering, not primarily the suffering itself. And there's different words that could be used. So you rejoice and you grieve. These believers were simultaneously filled with intense joy and deep sadness, grief, pain. Experientially, I think we can identify this with this. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you've gone through difficult trials as a Christian. You've had losses and pain and hurts and heartaches. And, 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 yet, and so you know, you've seen how grief and joy can be interwoven. I think you... You've probably seen that. You certainly witnessed it in others. Trials can be painful. Tears can flow. You can lament and be sorrowful. That's the way it's supposed to happen. That's how God made us. He made us with these internal pain receptors. We're supposed to grieve when we 
face trials and troubles. Yet we grieve as Christians, not as those without hope. And so there's confidence, there's hope, yes, joy in the midst of our sorrows. And that's, that's what Peter is acknowledging as he's seeing in this, in the, among these Christians that he's writing to. So Peter, he tells us several things about these trials that bring about grief in the midst of our joy. And so what, what kind of trials are present that, as we have this resilient joy? So let me just note a few things about these trials. One thing, trials are temporary, not forever. They're temporary, not forever. He says, for a little while. You see that expression. Was he suggesting that their trials were about to end really soon? You know, you're, you're, you're going to be, remember last week we talked about they're, they're, you're, they're alienated, they're scattered. Well, you're only going to be alienated and scattered just a couple more weeks. Hang in there. Is that what he's saying to them? Just for a little while. The, the persecution, it's probably not going to last to the end of the month. So just, just, then it's going to be over. Just hang on. Is that what he's saying? No. Actually, he's gonna, he warns them in this letter, you know, the suffering is going to get worse. It's going gonna, it's gonna to intensify. It's not going anywhere. Many of them would be martyred for their faith, including Peter himself. And so some of you are in the midst of great trials and sorrows and, and griefs and troubles, and, and there's really, humanly speaking, no prospect of those circumstances changing. And that's a difficult thing. You, you, you may have to face the hardship you're going through for the rest of your days on this earth until Christ calls you home or he returns. And I, I can't promise you that it will all be over by the end of this year or something like that if you just hang in there. We, we don't know. Peter isn't talking about with this expression for a little while. He's not, he's not talking about a countdown calendar. You know, we just, if we can just get to this date, then everything will be better. No, he's, he's wanting them to draw a comparison. That's what he has in mind with this phrase. Compared to our eternal, unfading inheritance that we looked at last week, for which we're being kept by the power of God, whatever we go through on this earth is a little while. Compared to that, it's just for a little while. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He's not minimizing the sufferings that we have at this present time. No, it's painful, it hurts, it's difficult, and it's not what we want. But you, you put it on a scale and boom, it, the eternal weight of glory is going to be revealed in us. That's far greater. It's for a little while. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul calls them momentary light afflictions. You know, as he recounts his afflictions, they're not, they're not, from our perspective, light at all. But, but in, in relative to the eternal weight of glory, they are momentary and they are light. Psalmist talks about Psalm 30 verse 5, weeping may last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. So that's, that's the idea of this. For, for little, trials are, are temporary. They're not, they're not forever. There's an expiration date on your suffering. There's a shelf life to trouble. And, and, and trials will not last forever. Though, though sometimes it feels like they will, but compared to eternity, this life and the troubles, it's like a blink of the eye. And it's gone and we'll have eternity to revel in the glory of God. So they're temporary, not not forever. Second, trials are purposeful, not random. 
They're purposeful, not random. He says, if necessary. That's a, that's a big word there. We may think, no, what I'm going through is not necessary. There is another way. It doesn't have to be this way. It's not, this is, this is unnecessary sorrow. But Peter means not necessary in our sight, but necessary in God's sight. In his wisdom, it's necessary. We, we know the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, William Cooper. talks about being behind God's dark and frowning providences. He hides his smiling face. Necessary, deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. That's, that's what Peter's saying. You can rejoice, if necessary, though, for a little while. You suffer, grieve, trials of many kinds. John Calvin says of this passage, his, his, Peter's purpose was to show that God does not try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without cause, it would be grievous to bear. Hence, Peter has taken an argument for consolation from the design of God. That's the, that's the comfort for us. It's, it's that God has designed. It's consolation from the design of God. Not because the purpose always appears to us, but because we ought to be fully persuaded that it ought to be so because it is God's will. So it's not that God says, let me tell you why you're going through this. Let me tell you what I'm up to. No, that's not our comfort is the ability to say, I know what God is doing in this trial. My comfort is the fact that God has deemed it necessary, so I trust Him. And He's wise and He's good and He loves me. And He, he only will allow what is good for my good and for his glory to come into my life. And so we, we will experience grief only as it's necessary in light of God's gracious and infinitely wise purposes for us. It's a theme of 1 Peter that suffering and, and difficulty, it's not random. It's not caused by the devil. It's not caused by impersonal fate or chance. No, it's allowed by God for a purpose, if necessary. Listen, brothers and sisters, God knows the trials you're facing. He knows. He, 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 he's not surprised by them. He's ruling your life as he's ruling the universe. He's seated on his throne. He's not pacing around, biting his nails and wringing his hands and, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, I didn't see that coming. Not at all. He is forever on his throne. And so he, he's in control. Even, even though the waters seem over your head right now, maybe, they are well under his feet. It's just a splash pad for him. It's not a big deal. He's in control. And so we'll, we're going to see a so that in verse 7. So they're, they're, just know there is a so that for, for your trials, whatever you're walking through right now. We don't always understand exactly what it is. But whatever you're walking through right now, it's necessary in God's sight. He's, he's using it. He's accomplishing his purposes through it. He's in control. And that's a comfort to us. Third thing about these trials, in which, which are the opportunity for us to manifest this resilient joy, trials are painful, not imaginary. So don't hear me minimizing um, what you're going through or what, believer, what kind of trials believers, even God's children can face, all, all people. He says, if, if for a little while you're grieved by various trials, and we talked about this word just a moment ago, but again, this isn't so much about physical pain. This is about 
mental anguish, about sadness, sorrow, uh, disappointment, trials, hurt. I mean, when Jesus is, is, is enduring the, the Calvary and the cross, he, he doesn't say, well, well, PTL, praise the Lord. He's not smiling up there. No, he wept. He cries out to God. He, he's, he's grieved. And, and so Peter, he's not denying that there is real pain in trials. We have, and we have the freedom to express that pain to God and to one another. And this is the Psalms. If you want to know how to do this rightly, look to the, to the book of Psalms and you see these Psalms pouring out their heart to God. And many Psalms of lament and sorrow and grief. And there's a right way to do that and use God's word to help you. But so, so to, to, to not express grief is, is, as I said earlier, it's a form of hypocrisy because that's, that's the right response. And, so the, and the church is the place to do that. This is the case for, and we're going to come back to this in, in a moment, but the church, is a place to, the church isn't a museum uh, showcasing and housing completed works of art. The church is a hospital which is to help uh, hurting people become healed. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is the place to do that. But just say, trials are painful. Peter doesn't downplay that and we shouldn't either. No, it's not imaginary. Fourth, trials are multifaceted. They're not one-dimensional. He says, uh, again, in verse, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Literally, many colored trials. So trials, they come in all kinds of colors and shapes and sizes. They're not, it's not one size fits all. They're not all the same. James uses the same word and expresses the same idea in James 1.12. Remember, count it all joy or consider it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's different, different kinds of trials. There are little ant-sized trials and there are enormous elephant-sized trials. There are two-day trials that come and they go, and there are two-decade trials that you, you have to walk through. There are simple trials, and there are incredibly complex and complicated and many-layered trials with all kinds of ramifications. There are slightly inconvenient trials. They're real, and they can hurt. But then there are those utterly tragic trials. So just... There's, there's trials of many kinds, many colors. They can affect any area of your life. They can affect your marriage. They can affect your children. They can, can affect your finances, your friendships, and relationships, your health, your, your school, your job. They can, it can affect anything. And so it's not just that there's one kind of trial that's, that's painful or that we have to be prepared for. No, they come in all kinds of, of, of forms. All right, so, so Peter says, and he acknowledges there, you have this resilient joy. You rejoice, though you grieve. Grieving is simultaneous with the rejoicing for these believers. Joy mixed with sadness, mixed with grief, is, is the normal experience for the Christian. Grief because of the many difficulties of just life in the fallen world. I mean, there's just stuff. It's a broken world right now. 
God's going to restore it, and it's going to get better, and it will be glorious for all eternity. But we live in a fallen world, yet, yet through eyes of faith, we can look to the unseen reality, that inheritance that awaits us, and, and, and we can look beyond this present experience and this, the sorrows and the griefs now, and we can rejoice. We can rejoice. So in verse 7, look down at verse 7, we get to see some of the divine purposes behind the grief that we now experience. So verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the, the tested genuineness, that's, that's an expression that was used of, of refining and testing metal, precious metals. And so again, you see that uh, Peter elaborates that on the middle of the verse, it's more gold that's tested by fire. So precious metals were, were tested by fire in the sense that they would, they, would, they would heat them up and melt them down. And so all the impurities, all the dross would be burned off or, or skimmed off the top until you had this, the, until the goldsmith could see his reflection, clear reflection in that molten metal. And, and so he could see himself and say, okay, this is pure gold. And so that's, that's the picture. And so God, God, Peter's taking that image and, and, and he's saying God uses trials to refine and to purify our faith. He's like a goldsmith. He burns away in the impurities of our faith. He reveals those areas in our lives where we're not really trusting him like we should. He keeps purifying us and testing us until he sees his image more clearly reflected in our lives as he looks into our lives and saying, ah, I see myself more and more clearly. So he's continuing to refine us and test us. And he uses trials to do that. There's a, a great old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And, he, and the, the writer talks about the flame will not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So God doesn't send the flame. He doesn't send trials to, to punish us. It's not to, it's not to destroy our faith. It's to refine. It's to grow. It's to nurture our confidence in him as believers. And so our faith is not static. We talked about this throughout the Gospel of John. It grows. It's being refined by God. And, and, it's, and it's vital. And so and the thing that God uses to help us and refine us is often is affliction. Martin Luther uh, is quoted by Spurgeon. And there's people that debate who actually said this. But we'll, we'll, go, we'll trust Spurgeon here and say that Luther said, Affliction is the best book in my library. Now, he was a book guy. So that says a lot. Um, but he just, he, what his point is, there's nothing like trials that God can use to refine us and to grow us. And, and that's, that's a book we, we have in our libraries. And the result is, this, is something that's, Peter says, more precious than gold. I mean, gold throughout most of human history has been considered the most valuable and precious and lasting of material possessions. But refined faith is much more precious than that. Even gold, which is one of the most durable substances, it's going to eventually perish by fire, Peter says. The goldsmith can work on that and refine it all he wants, but it's eventually going to be burned up in the end. But the, but the, the entire creation is, is on its way to, in, in, to destruction, but faith will last it's secure. Go back to verses 3 to 5. We have this inheritance that's imperishable. And, and, and we ourselves are being kept until we claim it by the power of God. So it's, it's, it's eternal. And it will be found, he says, to result in 
praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear praise and, and glory and honor, what do we tend to think of? We, we think of us and our response to God. We're praising and honoring and glorifying God, and that is the way that's generally used. But, but I, I think in context, what he's saying, he's talking about that praise, glory, and honor which God gives to us and will give to us on that last day. I think that's in the context what he's saying. This is talking about the reward believers will receive when, from God on that final day of judgment. Let me just give you a, a quote from a commentator. I think this is a helpful just short summary of, of this, what, what he's saying. He remind, Peter reminds Christians that God's purposes in present grief may not be fully known in a week, in a year, or even in this lifetime. Indeed, some of God's purposes will not be known when believers die and go to be with the Lord. Some will only be discovered at the day of a final judgment when the Lord reveals the secrets of all hearts and commends with special honor those who trust in him in hardship, even though they could not see the reason for it. They trusted him simply because he was their God and they knew him to be worthy of trust. It is in times when the reason for hardship cannot be seen that trust in God alone seems to become most pure and precious in his sight. Such faith he will not forget, but he will store up as a jewel of great value and beauty to be displayed and delighted in on the day of judgment. That's, I think that's a good summary. So Peter, you, know, you think about Peter. We talked about the, I talked uh, about this with the students on Friday night out at the retreat. And we were, the students talking about fear of man when people are big and God is small. And, and so I use Peter as an example of, of one. There's, there's several instances in his life, in the, as we see in the scriptures, where, where fear of man was present in Peter's life. And so he, he, he struggled with, with wanting and being controlled by the approval and opinions and thoughts of other people. But here, now he's in a place and he says, you know what? Your approval is all that matters. That's it. That's it. And so it's okay to be despised by everyone because I'm, I'm looking forward to your approval of own, uh, alone. And that's, that's to be us. That's the kind, when we have that perspective, that allows us to have joy that's resilient. And we can grieve various trials, many various trials uh, for a while, but we can have joy that's rooted in this, in the fact that we have living hope through Jesus Christ. So that's the, that's the first thing. This, the, 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 the joy that grows from the soil of living hope, it's resilient. And the second thing I want you to see about this living hope is it's relational joy. Relational joy. It's joy in knowing Christ himself. Verses 8 and 9. So the real focus of our joy is not, is not the inheritance. It's not, it's not uh, the glory. But it's, it's the real focus is the returning Christ himself. And that's what Peter goes on to say. Look, look again, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. The most important thing in your life is not what you see with your eyes. I know at times that's the, that's the case. It, we, we, we have circumstances, we have difficulties, and that's, it's, it clouds our vision, and that's all we can see, and it's hard to get away from that. But he's saying the most important thing in your life is not what you see with your eyes, but it's who you love. Though you've not seen him, you love him. You, you love. This is another one of those present tense, continuous action verbs. This is the normal, this is your normal present Christian experience. 
continuing love for Jesus Christ, even though you've never seen him with your eyes. Brothers and sisters, do you love Jesus? Do you love spending time with him? Do you love hearing from him in his word? Do you love talking with him? Do you love meditating upon him and upon his words and upon what he's done? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you love praising him? Do you love telling and talking with others about him? Do you love Jesus? This is the core of the Christian life. Central motivation for us in everything. Do you need to rekindle your love for Jesus? I mean, it's, it's like marriage. It's, it's easy to drift from, from taking delight in, the, in, in, in your spouse, that kind of delight that you used to have. You can drift off, and so you you got to rekindle that, that love for husband and wife. Well, so, so it is with our relationship with the Lord. Uh, you, you can see a great example of this in Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus, and they have all these great things going for them. They're they're blowing and going. They're they're doing so much right, and yet Jesus says, you know, there's there's this one thing though I have against you. You have you've left your first love. So he says, repent, go back, turn back, and so. It's possible, brothers and sisters, we can be dutifully living, quote, the Christian life and yet not be cultivating and maintaining a sincere love for our unseen Savior. It's possible. What should you do if that's the case? Well, this could be a sermon in itself. Just a a couple things. One, spend time with him. This is how it is in marriage. You You can't cultivate love for your spouse if you're never together alone. And so spend time with the Lord more. Spend more time. Spend alone time alone with Him in the Word and in prayer and resolve to make that a, more of a priority in your life. Second, obey Him. Obey Him. John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And so sometimes we have this wrong view of obedience, that obedience equals legalism, and that obedience is, is the opposite of love. That's not the case. To the contrary, if you're, if you're consistently choosing to disobey the Lord, you are not going to be able to love him as you should. And so, so uh, resolve, if there's areas where there's blatant disobedience in your life, you've you got you to turn from that and choose to, to do things God's way. And then finally, surround yourself with people who really love him. And this is not, not perfectly, but increasingly. This is why you've got to be with God's people consistently because our love can grow cold and, if, and the more we isolate ourselves from others who love Jesus and, 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 and we, we're, just, we're just setting ourselves up for more and more uh, apathy. So be with God's people. So these believers, he, he, Peter writes to you, they have this personal, daily, loving, living relationship with the ascended Lord Jesus. They don't, they don't see him with their eyes. They love him. And 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 the, and their and this present personal relationship with Christ, he describes more fully. Though you don't see, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's that joy again. So now, in this present age, in this time before Christ returns, you, we can't can't now see him with our physical eyes. Neither could Peter's readers. But, but what Peter says of his readers is, is also true of, again, it's of Christians in every age. We, we love and we believe the one we don't get to see yet. <laughs> and yet we believe, we trust, we rest our confidence on, we depend upon him now. Followed, and he follows this, uh, this believe, the word that we know 
well, and it's throughout Scripture, and particularly as we were in the Gospel of John, it just came up over and over again. But he uses this preposition, into. It's a, he, normally it's used with a little preposition, in, which is translated from the Greek word, in. Uh, but this is a different preposition in the Greek, and it's, it's not used anywhere else with this verb other than right here. He says, and, it, and it's strengthening the force of this. As, as believers even, you, you personally resting yourself into Christ. It's, just, it's a very intense faith. So be, you believe in Him. You're believing into Him, even though you don't see Him, and, and you're rejoicing. Same word of verse 6, but He strengthened it, strengthens it. Even that strong word in verse 6, He strengthens it even more with this expression. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Inexpressible, unutterable uh, is the only time this word is used in, in, in Scripture. And so it's a joy that's so powerful that it, and so profound that it's beyond our ability to express it with words, which is, is crazy to think. And it's not that he goes on, and it's full of glory. It's exalted. It's joy from being in the presence of God himself. Uh, Wayne Grudem says that the joy is the joy of heaven before heaven experienced now in fellowship with the unseen Christ this is exalted joy and so you can see this contrast earlier Paul speaks of this strong joy that's rejoicing in this future hope and then here though our daily fellowship with the risen Jesus himself knowing, believing, loving him it's cause for this even greater rejoicing unutterable exalted joy. And he continues, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he says his his readers, they're receiving, they're obtaining the outcome or the goal of their faith while they're believing in and rejoicing in Christ. They're obtaining, they're progressively obtaining more and more of this outcome to which their faith leads which is the salvation of their souls. And I don't think that's talking about justification, like they're, they're getting more and more justified. That's not it. Now, that's settled when they trusted in Christ. No, he's talking about the full possession of all the blessings of salvation. You're obtaining more and more of that outcome. You're knowing this more and more. Verse 9, he, he's describing, as someone said, appropriating into the believer's life more and more of the blessings of salvation. So this happens as Christians continually believe into Christ continually rejoice because of that personal trust in him so it's resilient joy that's what we're called to and that's what peter saw in these believers but it's also relational joy it's not just stick it out joy it's joy that's rooted and and it's tied to the person of jesus christ we love him we believe him we hope in him it's 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 personal well, the, the theme for this series, and, and, and we see it right at the outset of this chapter, is hope is alive. Hope is alive. Because it's alive, it's living, it means it's growing, and therefore it produces fruit. It, it, it's worked out in life. Some of that fruit that we see right here is joy. It's joy. Resilient joy, joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grief. And it's relational joy. Joy in knowing, believing, loving the risen Christ himself. I just want to note one final thing about this passage before we sing and, and we finish. 
rejoicing, you, we see this in many places in Scripture where it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So it's, it's an imperative in many places. But here it's not a command. It's simply a report. Let's look at it again, verse 6. In this, you rejoice. And uh, though you've not seen him, you love him. And when you see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. So it's, it's, it's not an imperative, it's an observation that Peter's made about these believers. So he's reminding them about something that's already happening in their churches. And these believers that are scattered in these different churches throughout what's modern day Turkey. And, and so he's writing to these Christians. And even though you're facing all kinds of various trials, you are continually and greatly rejoicing. It's an observation. You see that? So he's saying to them, I think say it like this. Peter says to them, look around. Look around you, brothers and sisters. Look at your church families. Look, look at your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Some of them are going through incredibly difficult trials and circumstances. And they're grieving in very great ways because of the difficulties that they're walking through. And yet, by God's power, they're, they're finding joy. Not just little joy, great joy. Joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. So look, look around you. I know some of you, brothers and sisters, are going through times of incredible difficulty right now. And, and, and all of us will have those seasons. And some of those seasons may last till the day we die. And yet you have resilient relational joy in the Lord. That's an encouragement. That's an encouragement to me. That's an encouragement to all of us. If you're walking through the fire right now, I know there's a tendency to think, well, I, have, I really have no opportunities to minister right now. I, I, until I get on the other side of this trial, it's so consuming. I'm just, I'm kind of useless. No, you're not. You're useful just by showing up here on Sundays and sitting here and having your Bible open and your heart uh, convicted and encouraged and strengthened and singing with God's people and faithfully involved here. That, that is a ministry. As you, as you grieve trials and simultaneously fight for joy and hope in the risen Christ, you are ministering to this body. You are, you are serving us and we are helped by your presence with us.